Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and、uh, it has been an extremely, extremely busy week in China, Africa. Every week on the show, what we do is we take a look back at some of the key stories, and then we also try and kind of anticipate what's coming up in、uh, in the news of the week. So it's a review and a preview. And to help me do all of this, I've got a great team here around us. So going first to、uh, Washington D.C.,、uh, Ann Sherman, who is also our Facebook community manager. So when you see the the name Ann in the brackets on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash/ChinaAfricaProject, Ann is the woman behind that. How are you today, Ann? I'm doing great. How are you? Excellent. Okay. And then also we have a twofer down in Cape Town today. Our regular standby, Kobus Van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University. Kobus,、uh, how's the、uh, the weather today in、uh, in Cape Town? Cloudy and rainy. Okay. And uh, uh, <laughs> that's fitting actually for what we're going to be talking about.、Uh, <laughs> and then also at Cape Town, at the University of Cape Town, we're joined.、Uh, we're really thrilled to have a guest today. Uh, who's going? Siswei Lovu. I hope I said your name correct. Who's a final year student in computer science, and、uh, who's also expressing an interest in studying the kind of the tech sector in in Africa, and particularly the Chinese influence in it. Welcome to the show, Siswei. Well, thank you for having me here. Excellent. So Siswei is joining us by phone, so there might be a little bit of a delay, but、uh, we're thrilled to have you on the show. So let's talk about four subjects today.、Um, again, there was too much to pick from this week, so we had to narrow it down.、Um, we had to start, of course, with、uh, the new U.S. policy announcement that came out of Washington,、uh, both from President Obama and from Secretary Clinton, on、uh, their new strategy for Africa.、Uh, Anne is going to kind of hopefully give us some insights on that. Then we're going to head over to Algeria. Where、uh, Huawei and ZTE have been、uh, banned for two years from contracts、uh, in a bribery scandal, and so this is really one of the first major bribery scandals that、uh, that's emerged, and there's been actual punishment. So we'll talk about that and the effects on the telecom sector in North Africa.、Uh, then finally, well, actually, no, third story of the week: stadium diplomacy. An article out of World Policy Journal that、uh, the folks at World Policy Journal kindly sent to us this week.、Uh, we'll talk about stadium diplomacy, which is something Kobus and I have brought up、uh, a couple of times、uh, on the show over the past few months. And finally, we're going to talk about two really interesting articles that surfaced this week on the growing presence of Chinese immigrants and emigration from China to Africa, and how it's really becoming a permanent presence、uh, in the Chinese demographic landscape. So that's our outline for the show today. There's a lot to talk about. Let's get started with U.S.-Africa policy. The United States came out this week and said it's really going to emphasize trade. And were you surprised at all from what you heard? And was this a change in U.S. policy, or is this just a rehash of what they've been saying for the past few years about you know the importance of Africa and how they have to you know improve trade relations and whatnot? I think in general this is nothing new. This is quite frankly very late. You know, most people thought Af-、uh, Obama would give a lot more priority to Africa and kind of an overhaul of Africa policy. I think. The only real piece of you know, noteworthy change is maybe a bigger emphasis on、um, promoting investment and spurring growth and、uh, kind of encouraging U.S. companies to invest more in Africa. And I do think that、um, people generally see this as a reaction to increased competition and investment、uh, from the Chinese in Africa.、Um, but I think. What people have found most noteworthy about the policy is what it did not mention. That was published coincidentally the same day, which were these Washington Post、uh, articles about U.S. spy and drone.、Uh, initiatives all around the country. I mean, this is what just makes me shake my head with disbelief. I mean, and again, in Cobus, this is something we've talked about on a number of occasions that there seems to be a double standard in terms of the Chinese and how a lot of people regard the Chinese in Africa. I don't say this in defense of the Chinese at all. They're worthy of all the criticism that comes their way. However,、uh, it does seem like. Can you imagine if the Chinese or pretty much any government? Had the you know announced new covert bases or or just revealed that there were new covert military bases had a hundred troops operating in a place like Uganda had you know launched covert military operations in Somalia was using their country as a base for you know attacks throughout you know the Gulf and the Middle East and why there isn't more outrage and so I'm just curious the viewpoint from Africa 
Why does the United States, despite its lack of interest, as Anne said, there's really nothing new in this, uh, in this policy announcement. The, the Americans seem to have ignored Africa for a long time, and yet there still seems to be a big reservoir of goodwill. Well, and can I jump in and ask one more question also? Yeah. Do you think, Kobus, is this really a big surprise, these, these reports, or was this kind of like everyone knew it was going on, but it just hasn't been, I guess, publicized by the media as much? I think I think there's been awareness in Africa for a while that it's been going on, particularly around you know, particularly in uh, the Horn of Africa, um, you know. So so people have been you know thinking about that um, about the, the possibilities of, of of drone strikes. I think in in Africa generally, but I think it's it's still such a kind of a sci-fi concept for a lot of Africans that you know kind of that. They, even though they know it's going on, they don't really feel it's kind of impacting on their daily lives. Um, you know, kind of, and what they do feel impacting on their daily lives is this kind of like soft power of, of kind of American cultural presence. Um, you know, which particularly in South Africa is pretty strong. Particularly African American cultural presence in South Africa is very strong. Um, you know, so I think um, you know the the idea that you know I, I think I think there might be a tipping point at some stage in in terms of how in terms of the positivity towards America, but. I I think that might be full in the future. Yeah, we're still not there. Seizeway, when you think of the Americans and you hear about these kinds of policies, when you and your in your peer group, do you what do you think? Do you think positive, negative, indifferent? What's what's your thoughts when you hear a change of or an Obama announcement like this? Um, well, I mean, sometimes well in, in this context, you know, what what I have generally noticed is um, you know, the bond between US and South Africa have generally been getting stronger. Um Ever since the Obama administration in fact came in, I mean, they've been doing, they've been very involved with things in South Africa as well. Uh, especially now with the most recent announcement about uh, the uh, the Obamas getting the keys, city of Cape Town, and just just generally just a lot of activity happening between uh, the South Africa, South Africa and the U.S. And, um, it seems, you know, it, it seems like there's a genuine interest from the U.S. side. Um, obviously. I keep thinking also to myself, you know, like I don't, I'm not too sure if maybe this is the fear of the competition of China's, you know, expanding market or vested interest in Africa and actually South Africa per se, you know, given that the relationships also between China and South Africa are really strong, that the economy in China is booming, it's actually said to surpass the U.S. So I mean, you know, I say pretty wary about these things. Um, but, I mean, I, I, it, it seems like there's a genuine interest from the side of, of the U.S., you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, I, I think your kind of feed, your approach and what you're saying is, is reflects a, a big part of the population because they're, most of the people don't seem to be reacting the way that I do, which is just kind of like, what? <laughs> you know, with the disbelief. <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, which is not I'm unusual, by the way. I'm wondering if I can jump in, Anne. Um, the... You know, kind of Howard French was making the point that um, that America, that the American government is maintaining uh, relationships with a bunch of pretty kind of dictatorial kind of governments in in uh, in Africa. And obviously, this is these are this is the kind of allegation that comes up about China and Africa all the time. So I was wondering whether that you know kind of drew any kind of attention there, whether that kind of is shaping the way that Americans think about America's uh, position in Africa. You know, I think that. Um, I think that Howard French made a really good point, and I think that there are definitely hypocrisies and gaps in both, you know, Chinese and American actions in Africa um, in terms of what they say they do and what they actually do. I mean, I think that Americans in general are kind of wary about any partners in Africa, and um, you know, I think that I think that it's kind of in many opinion, it's hard to know, you know, who who do we support and who is really uh, promoting good governance, who is, you know, where is there really no corruption. Um, it's really hard to find uh, strong partners in Africa, I think, for the U.S. And so, um, you know, I don't think that the fact that we promote these policies and we have these goals, um, you know, is is wrong. And if that's what we're working towards, I think that's that's a good thing.
Well, let me give a little context here. Howard French, of course, is a professor at Columbia University uh, in the journalism school there, but he's also uh, more well-known for being a former China correspondent for the New York Times as well as a longtime correspondent in Africa. You can follow Howard French, and I do recommend following his Twitter feed at uh, Ho French, H-O French, uh, on Twitter. Now, he wrote an article this week for The Atlantic called The Dilemma at the Heart of America's Approach to Africa. And as Anne said, it really talked about the contradiction where they're promoting democracy. And this is, again, this is the hypocrisy that I just kind of marvel at. Whereas Hillary Clinton, with a straight face, talks about how the center of the American foreign policy in Africa is democracy and political you know, transparency. But at the same time, all they're doing is promoting, you know, people like uh, Museveni in Uganda, which is hardly a democratic country. Uh, you know, they're still putting a billion dollars a year into the Egyptian military government there. We'll find out if it's a democracy after, uh, after this week. And then, uh, you know, so this is where I just wish that we had, uh, you, know, I, you know, I feel like there is a double standard. Uh, you know, final thoughts on this, uh, Kobus, anybody else before we move on? Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of. I think for for me, the the the, the problem is, um, it's not only the double standard. It's it's a kind. Of, it seems that there's a, a kind. Of, it's like there's a dimension missing. You know, kind of in in American thinking about Africa. You know, kind of the Chinese have a pretty kind of a multi-dimensional kind of engagement with Africa. So they they, they give aid, but they also see Africa as a viable market. Um, and the very fact that Chinese products are arriving by the crate load, you know, kind of in Africa, that itself is changing African life. And it still keeps, you know, it's a point that I keep making over and over in these podcasts, but it still just baffles me that American businesses don't, just don't seem to be interested in Africa. You know, kind of, in a way, it, that, that seems, it's a kind of, it's weirdly kind of insulting, you know, kind of, it's a little bit like, oh, we don't need your money. No, you know? but it's absolutely true. <laughs> which, and I know, which is this kind of like weird, um, I think, knee-jerk reaction from Africans who have been kind of cut out and marginalized from from kind of the cultural life of the world generally um you know kind of and i I think i think that could be a problem in the future yeah i mean it's really uh it's another very good point is that back behind a chinese statement on investing in Africa comes a whole range of programs from the Exim Bank, from the China Overseas Development Fund, you know, from five or six different sources of money that can then the Chinese can follow through, not just aid. But remember when the Americans talk about investment in Africa, they don't have as many tools or they are not deploying as many tools as as the Chinese and as other countries are. So it is a very, very good point. That's one that we're going to finish up on. But again, um, we will be continuing to follow uh, U.S. policy, China policy, and also we'll post up uh, on our Facebook page. I think we've already posted, Anne, the, uh, the, the Howard French article. I tweeted also this week the response from Beijing in the China Daily where uh, the Chinese said that they would keep, quote, an open mind about cooperation with U.S. in Africa, which I thought was a very polite diss. Uh, you know, that's like, you know, I love you. Well, thank you. So uh, <laughs> so that was, uh, I, I don't really get the sense that the Chinese are too open to the Americans and cooperating with the Americans in uh, in Africa. But we'll have uh, all of those articles up on the, uh, on the Facebook page. And we do hope that we can get some of your participation, get what you think. We want you to, uh, to share your opinions. Do you agree with me and shake your head with disbelief or uh, are you uh, more on the uh, the pro-American side, as uh, as Seasway's kind of mentioned that a lot of uh, of Southern Africans are? So Seasway, we're next topic in our show might be right up your alley, as you are a student in computer science. Um, Huawei and ZTE are two of the largest telecom infrastructure operators and, and, uh, and companies in the world. They've been very, very active from really from Algeria all the way to Angola. In fact, uh, Seasway and Cobus, I suspect that you are connecting to this podcast today uh, via some part of a Huawei uh, technology, either your USB key is uh, is Huawei, either the network uh, system that you're on, either the phone system that you're using is Huawei. Somewhere along the food chain, there's probably a ZTE and Huawei uh, piece of the of the of the telecom infrastructure. Well, they got into Absolutely. I think all of the above. Oh, maybe all of the above. Probably that's actually a very good point. Well, uh, you know, it, and it seems kind of interesting what's happened in Algeria this past week, um, where an Algerian uh, you know Algerian authorities have banned both Huawei and ZTE for two years uh, due to a ten million dollar bribe. Uh, allegation of a bribe. I'm not sure if it's uh, no. The court founded it, so it was uh, so a ten million dollar bribe. Uh, 
So the question for me is, we'll start, Cobus, with you, then Seasway, I'll go to you. Um, does this hurt Huawei? I mean, $10 million for Huawei is sofa change, really, at the end of the day. Does this hurt Algeria more than it hurts Huawei and ZTE? Or is this really kind of, you know, a real first, the first check and a, and a really helpful check on Huawei and ZTE's, you know, legendarily uh, corrupt business practices? Yeah, my, my feeling is it might hurt Algeria more, you know, kind of um, sadly, even though, you know, kind of there's been allegations coming out of WikiLeaks as well that there's been um, corruption um, in, you know, Huawei and ZTE dealings in Kenya as well. Um, and apparently a lot of pressure from other Kenyan politicians on Kenyan telecoms to keep doing business with Huawei and ZTE. But that said, you know, kind of I think in, it's, it's one of those kind of sad kind of uh, you know, kind of where you're kind of balancing the one against the other kind of situations, you know, kind of because, because you know, telecoms are, and, and telecom phone and internet connections are so crucial to the future of Africa in the 21st century that, you know, kind of that it, it seems that kind of cutting those two um, companies that provide so much of, of this kind of, uh, this kind of, you know, infrastructure at, at relatively, you know, kind of uh, relatively affordable levels, uh, might hurt Algeria more. I don't know what you think is where. Um, yeah, uh, one thing I understand about Huawei is that they really, they are pretty much the main source of really affordable telecommunication technology, um, and they invested a lot here in in Africa. So, just in terms of what happen, what's happening in Algeria, I fully understand that. Um, in terms of China, actually you know, investing here in Africa and taking advantage of, you know, all the opportunities here. And one of them obviously being telecommunications and, you know, trying to take advantage of the fact that, you know, telecommunications is something that we need here in Africa. Um, I think Algeria could actually see quite, um, you know, detriment to this. You know, Huawei is, um, you know, connecting quite, a, is very involved in telecommunications in Africa. And um, without them, I'm just, trying to see perhaps the alternatives that they could go to and Huawei, I mean, it was mentioned in one of the articles that, that in one of the articles that um, Huawei is actually one of the most affordable um, methods for one of the most affordable telecommunications providers in these areas and other companies such as Nokia and Siemens are actually falling short because of the affordability that Huawei provides. So in Huawei not actually being allowed there for two years, uh, it should be interesting actually what happens in in Algeria. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, in South Africa, you know, you find a situation where all of the big cell phone companies, um, you know, like 100% of them, they all run on Huawei. Um, you know, kind of so, so it seems like, you know, kind of cutting, cutting them, cutting them out of the African market seems in a way like almost cutting the internet out of the African market. Well, you know, kind of, and I think that that's, a, that's the bigger problem. Fair enough. But, on, you know, just to play the yeah. devil's advocate here, remember that Algeria is one of the few countries that actually has a revenue stream, you know, through its oil um, as a member of OPEC. Uh, so it can afford, if it has to, go to Alcatel or go to, you know, to Nokia for, for that type of network infrastructure, if it has to. You know, for me, what's, again, you know, irony slash hypocrisy is anytime you see a corruption trial in, a, in, in most of Africa, uh, where corruption is, you know, not a foreign word. Um, I mean, I hate to paint the whole continent that way, but there is, you know, varying degrees of corruption, you know, across the continent on, on varying levels. It just it just strikes me as weird. I mean, it just strikes me as this a political. This seems political to me. This does not seem to be a legal process. This does not seem to me to be about corruption because corruption in Algeria. Several of my colleagues uh, at where I work here in Paris are Algerian and report nothing more than one of the reasons they left often was was the endemic corruption across the country. So, and we had corruption trials in the Congo as well, which I always found rather ridiculous. Um, yeah, and you know, kind of, I think in in the case of of you know, kind of Huawei kind of hit back at these allegations, saying that they um, that these you know that this was not orchestrated by them from the top, but that it was you know kind of like particular kind of officials um, who were who were in their words kind of coerced into corruption. So I'm not 100 percent sure what they meant, but it seemed to me kind of what I could just glean from it seems that they were you know kind of kind of being mired in a kind of a, a wider culture of corruption in Algeria, perhaps. I mean, that's what I understood. Yeah, and obviously, you know, Huawei and ZT are products of, of the Chinese, you know, economic system, which, 
has never been known for its purity and uh, and its cleanliness. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if the if if Huawei and ZTE are throwing bribes up and down Africa. I mean, but to me also that's just the way that things are done. Uh, and and to them, this is the cost of doing business. I guess if they get left out of, of Algeria, it's probably not the biggest market for them. I mean, it's certainly not Nigeria or South Africa or Kenya. So, it, you know, I don't know if Huawei or ZTE are crying at the end of the day. But Seasway, uh, yeah. when, when we look at, at network infrastructure as a whole, we're hearing more and more uh, about the, the emergence of LTE. And ZTE is, is really one of the, uh, the pioneers of LTE in Africa. That's the 4G networks that are starting to roll out. Um, and so is this when we were talking a little bit about the reputation of the Chinese versus the Americans in Africa, do people make the association, you know, in places like South Africa, when Chinese companies are building out LTE networks, 3G networks, connectivity, really bringing, you know, big chunks of the African continent into the digital era? Is there an association made, in your view, between the Chinese and that? Or is it just, you know what, I've got new Internet service. That's fantastic. I don't care. And I don't know where it came from. Yeah, um, yeah, to actually answer that one. Um, yeah, a, a lot of the, the general scope of uh, users basically in South Africa, would, and I think it would apply pretty much anywhere, um, would just be that, well, I mean, as long as we have 4G, or as long as 4G can try it out, you know, we'll use it. And there you are know, a couple of articles which I've come across, you know, previously about, you know, local networks, um, I know Vodacom, uh, local network here in South Africa, they're actually trying out, they're testing out 4G and testing out connectivity and, you know, we're fully aware that Huawei is also behind Vodacom and another, uh, a number of other um, software networks here in South Africa. Um, it's, it wouldn't really be the perception of, you know, okay, there's a Chinese company behind us offering 4G LTE, so we're not going to use it. I think as long as that, that uh, platform, as long as the 4G is actually there or the LTE, I think there'll be, you know, room for, you know, target consumers, and I think they would really use it. Cobus, you know, um, if, if, if I was, I wonder, oh, go ahead. Um, earlier this week, when we when we were kind of discussing stuff by email, you mentioned to me that you had been um, in conversation with a Chinese venture capitalist who um, is interested in IT, IT kind of deals in South Africa. I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. Yes. Um, so on a social network, I was. Um, contacted by a, a venture capitalist who's in South Africa for uh, until the end of July and she was she was basically looking for uh, you know, uh, in people uh, developers who are creating software who would like to start something and she was see in South Africa trying looking for looking to fund these people to you know to, to fund their business and actually bring them towards bring them into the Chinese market and I was a bit, it, for me it was rather interesting, you know, given how um, the Chinese Chinese tech industry is one, actually for the Chinese tech industry, it's very um, controlled uh, by the, you know, by the, 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 by the, 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 the Chinese authorities, it's very close up and uh, there are a lot of hindrances, you know, like, for instance, major tech uh, companies such as Facebook and Twitter and most of the popular ones aren't, aren't allowed into the country. And yes. For me, this is one of the striking things because I mean, if if us in South Africa, myself as a developer in South Africa, and you know, I'm approached by a Chinese venture capitalist and basically giving me way to enter the the you know the market there. So I I, would, I started thinking, you know, is is this perhaps like one of maybe a good working relationship between South Africa and China? Um, you know, it was just really interesting for me to actually uh, have encountered that. Um, could you get could you get an idea of like what kind of particular kind of social network stuff they were interested in? Did, did she give you any kind of details? Uh, so basically, um, she was very, um, you know, very adamant on just you know finding uh, a startup, you know, like a, a tech startup, obviously in the form of a social network, which is going to then attract the people. And it was it was very you know. She, she was very straightforward about, you know, uh, finding a sort of a, a software development, like an, an idea, basically, that she'd like to bring into the Chinese market that she's willing to fund. Um, as to being more specific of what what the actual idea of it being was, um, she was very open to it as long as it was 
it was a profitable idea which was open towards the Chinese markets. Uh, mm. And my my well my what I was really interested in, or what I really found fascinating is that she comes to South Africa to actually do to actually find these companies to invest in. But I understand that the, the startup culture in, in in China is very oversaturated. There are a lot of startup companies coming there and there's so much competition and it, it, it's more of clones just coming out the whole time. And I think uh, it, I mean, it seems like the, 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 the venture capitalist stream is very interested in South Africa from, from the Chinese perspective. It's uh, Cobus. It's 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 absolutely fascinating to hear the idea that the Chinese are either you know venture capital and private equity firms are combing the world for ideas, uh, you know, and this idea that you know there might be something that they can extract out of South Africa to bring back to to China and to the China market, um, you know. And again, what I what I find very interesting about you know the entire Chinese experiment in Africa is, and this is something that I think a lot of Westerners underestimate. Um, is the fact that they're learning and they're observing and they're adapting and they are, you know, extracting ideas to bring back home. And it's one of the key differences that I see with the, how the Chinese are behaving in Africa versus how a lot of Western governments, the Western governments come to try and impose uh, a certain way of life, a certain way of thinking, a certain political system. And you see much more, and you know, the Chinese have been criticized for not doing that. But at the same time, there seems to be a lot of ideas that are coming out of Africa and trying to make their way back. We'll see. That might be idealizing it just a little bit. Uh, and any final comments on this subject? We haven't heard from you on this topic, but... Uh... Oh, well, no, we just uh, wanted to see. I think we've lost Anne in this discussion, so... Uh... Oh, I'm back. I was going to say, actually, one thing I was reading about um, startup culture in Beijing and um, Chinese venture capitalists is that one of the big issues is, you know, you might uh, create a startup in China and uh, there's very little protection for intellectual property rights and, you know, you might uh, create something and uh, one month later there's 4,000 free imitators. And so um, a lot of Chinese uh, young students who are creating these startups will go abroad and try to kind of uh, begin and create their startup somewhere else and get investment elsewhere, and then come back to China when they have more protection. And so, Tiwei, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. It's an interesting concept that you could use South Africa as a, as a because of South Africa is a relatively strong legal system. Um, it's a place where you can actually protect your your intellectual property. Tiwei, any any have you heard anything like that bubbling in uh, in Cape Town or South Africa? Yeah, there's a problem. There's a really prominent. Um, the startup culture here in, in Cape Town specifically, I know it's uh, uh, it, it, it's very, un what I understand, what, what happens in the U.S. that it's a very free market, it's a very, you know, very free market um, type of economy happening there, and it's uh, pretty much along the same lines here in South Africa. So, um, yeah. It's so we could, we could possibly potentially see Chinese startups in South Africa, so that's something to to keep an eye on. But Anne, you made a good point about intellectual property and, and the oversaturation on that. And uh, So let's move on to our third topic. This was actually sent to us by the folks at the World Policy Institute. Uh, did I get that right? Yes, I did. Um, they were very kind to kind of offer up an article by the name uh, from Rachel Will, who wrote uh, you know, an article on Chinese stadium diplomacy. Now, this is a topic that's been, you know, there was nothing really groundbreaking in the article, but it did do a nice synthesis of the fact that China has long used stadiums as a way to ingratiate themselves to host governments, whether in Africa or uh, in, in, in Latin America or even in South Asia. Uh, one of the most famous stadiums, of course, that they built is the Martyr Stadium in Kinshasa that goes back to the 60s, where, um, where if I stand corrected, the if I think uh, the rumble in the jungle uh, with Muhammad Ali and George Foreman happened. So uh, there's been a lot of notoriety about Chinese stadiums. Um, Cobus, actually, no, let me go to Anne. Anne, on, on, on stadium diplomacy, do you see a problem with it? Because let me just put out an idea. Stadiums are terrible investments, both in the United States and anywhere else. You build it, it's got a couple good events, and they really don't do much. Why not have a foreigner come in and pay for it so you don't have to? I mean, it seems like it's great for the host country. I mean, yeah, you're right. They're terrible investments. Um, but I don't think that you know, I think people criticize the Chinese for um, for 
doing this and coming in and investing in stadiums or palaces or theaters that don't need to be built. Um, and I think I think it is really effective for the Chinese. I think that people do know who build these stadiums, and I think that they're a really tangible kind of uh, form of soft power that maybe the U.S. isn't as good at, at doing in Africa. Um, but I think another thing to remember is that, um, you know, there are African governments who are kind of investing in these um, maybe not so great projects as well. I know in Senegal there was a huge uh, renaissance statue uh, which the government paid $30 million to build um, and it was a huge controversy because, uh, you know, why are we spending money on this, you know, large statue uh, and they actually had a North Korean uh, construction company come and build it. Um, so I think that, you know, this is a really, I think it's a really effective form of soft power for the Chinese and um, I don't think that it's fair to necessarily criticize them for, for doing that. Okay, Kobus. Yeah, I agree with you, actually. Like, it's also, for me, it's even a wider issue. It's like, you know, kind of who is really to be criticized here? Is it really the Chinese for providing these stadiums or, or the African governments who really want them? You know, kind of, um, like, it's, you know, in, in a, you know, Africa is a soccer mad continent, you know, kind of, so, um, you know, soccer... Soccer, to, to, you know, kind of carries a lot of symbolism, um, but you know, it, it seems like such a kind of empty symbolic gesture. You know, kind of this massive, this you know, this massive structure, and you know, we have one big party in it all. We have the African Cup of Nations playing, you know, five matches in it, and then it just stands there. And but you know, kind of, it's like me wanting a fur coat. Is it my fault for for you know, kind of getting the fur coat or the shops, you know, fault for selling it to me? But wh why? It, but know, okay, Cobus, kind of, there seems to be. For me, that, that Africans need to push back against that kind of development more. You make an excellent point, and that was a point that we made during the BBC, uh, you know, China debate uh, program, China BBC Africa debate program, where the coverage, you know, looking at Rachel's piece here, it doesn't make that point. It puts all the burden on the Chinese, you know, that the stadiums are rusting and not being used to their maximum, you know, potential. doesn't seem to be the Chinese fault. It's the host country's fault. Uh, but yet the the article, though, is seems to put in all the burden on it, and most of the Western press coverage seems to do this. Yeah, it seems to me that there's a logic in there as well that, you know, kind of that, which is something we've discussed as well before, is that there is a logic that, that Africa is essentially a place where things get done too. You know, kind of Africans are people who are people that other kind of people do things too. And that Africans have, you know, kind of lack agency in some kind of way or lack decision making power, which is just, you know, that's the biggest problem we have generally in Africa. Yeah, listen, let, over, well, oh, go ahead, Anne. I mean, I was going to say that, uh, I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying, but I think that there is an issue that there are a number of uh, leaders or people in power who are thinking more in the short term and thinking more about um, you know, their own interests or keeping power and not necessarily about the long-term uh, interests of, you know, national interests or interests of their people, interests of their long-term economy. And so, you know, I think how do, how do, you, how do you solve that so that uh, Africans can make better decisions? Yeah, but again, you know, all countries seem to, and, and maybe all leaders to some extent, behave out of their own self-interest. So, you know, one line in the piece that I that I really kind of rubbed me a little bit is she wrote, you know, Beijing's self-absorbed offensive. And I didn't really know what she meant by that. And, you know, so of course it's Beijing has an agenda. Every country has an agenda, you know, in its foreign policy. Um, whether these leaders, as you talk about, are behaving in the best interest of their people or not, is that, again, Beijing's responsibility to, 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 to mediate? Um, just again, I, I'm trying to put the same standard to to the Chinese as any country. Um, I don't believe that any of these countries are acting benevolently. Uh, you know, even if the U.S. is giving billions of dollars in aid, it's doing it for a reason. The Europeans the same way. So, I mean, when she says Beijing self-absorbed offensive, and you know, when you talk about these questions of you know, are the leaders acting in the best interests of their people? Is that China's responsibility? 
But I was wondering whether, you know, so, sorry, um, you know, to, just to add to that, actually, just, just to add another, like, you know, a wing to that question, is um, it was interesting for me how so much of it is linked to trying to marginalize Taiwan. Um, you know, kind of, and that it seems like, you know, kind of if you switch allegiances to China, then you gain a stadium in the process. And I was wondering if you think that might be what she meant with this, this kind of self-absorption of, of their policy. Sorry, Anne, go ahead. Okay, so we're hitting you, Anne, from all sides now. I think that, I mean, I see what you're saying, but I think that uh, you would never see the U.S. Uh, decide to go in and, and uh, build a theater in Senegal or a, another stadium. I think that, you know, while definitely the U.S.'s uh, aid and investment in Africa is, is self-interested, just as any country's is, sure, you know, I think that there is a little bit of responsibility um, on the part of the Chinese and the Americans and what they decide to invest in. And I think that, you know, a stadium that's used once a year uh, is maybe not as good an investment, although it is uh, a very symbolic uh, kind of way of affecting African, uh, African, you know, goodwill for the Chinese. Okay, so that's a fair point. But at the end of the day, then, we have to look at the trillion dollars of Western aid that has gone into Africa over the past half century since, you know, since the end of colonialization and how yet health standards still among, you know, most of the continent are declining. They're not getting better. Um, And so it seems to me that by that standard, which is a perfectly fair standard, most of the aid that's been sunk into Africa over the past half century is on par with putting a stadium up, which really doesn't have much utility and use for it. I just... You don't hear the same type of criticism towards, you know, the new U.S. health program in Zambia that, you know, $300 million that basically in one shot destroyed every local health initiative. So I just, I guess my frustration is not there, there isn't the same, you know, 50-paragraph analysis, which her, she did really nice job on, but of, of U.S. And, and a European, you know, failed aid projects that have basically the same result as a, as a stadium in some respects, but somehow get a different treatment. Um, if I may ask, I just want to chip in. Um, just want to ask you a question. I also had to read the article, and there was something that was actually pointed out there, which I found pretty interesting. So um, they were speaking about the the, uh, the stadium that they built in Mozambique, uh, which which they actually they they I think if I'm not mistaken, the Mozambique actually gave it the name. It, it was the name basically meant um, something along the lines of. China and Mozambique having relations that last lo- as long as the heaven and, and, and earth. Um, and then yet at the same time, just reading further down, they just spoke more about how in China building stadiums in these places, they usually just bring all of their own people to come to the country. And, you know, they, they have Chinese people working on building these stadiums and basically not facilitating towards improving the situation in the country that they're in therefore actually putting strain on the relationship between the two countries. Um, so I, I think there was a little bit of well, a y- confusion y- on my side from that part of the, the article. Yeah, I mean, you, you bring up the issue... Tightened, yet at the same time, they're actually broken because of this. I don't know, you know what you guys actually... Uh, how you feel about this or, you know, having seen this. Kobus, he, he hit the third rail of, uh, of, of China-Africa <laughs> politics here with the question of labor. Um, and, it, it, of course, it wouldn't take long for that to come up. But she did make a very good point in this, is that sometimes these stadiums have to be built under very tight schedules. They're in, in places like Mozambique. You don't have the engineering talent. Um, you don't have even the trained workforce to do it. And so under the schedules, it's sometimes cheaper uh, to bring in and faster to bring in Chinese labor. Now, I uh, want to direct people to um, AmCham China, the American Chamber of Commerce in China, where Deborah Braudigam gave a recent interview on a podcast there. They have a pretty good podcast series. And she talked about the labor situation. And, uh, Kobus, I just wanted to kind of bounce this off you in the context of what Sizwe just said, which was that, you know, the cost of Chinese labor not only in China is going up, but it's also going up in Africa. And the cost of transporting, you know, somebody from China to Africa to house them, to feed them, to protect them is expensive. And so how really in, in Braudigam's perspective, um, this whole, 
kind of emphasis on the use of Chinese labor is overstated because the vast majority of labor used in Chinese projects, according to her, is African labor. But because the Chinese stand out so much and they're visibly foreigners, it really rubs people just the wrong way. And so what's your thought in the context of both stadiums and the issue of labor? Yeah, I think I think you know, kind of that from from what I've read, that that you know seems to be right. Um, I think it's frequently in the case in in the case where there are kind of personnel, African personnel that they can use. I think they tend to try to use them. You know, kind of managers might be Chinese, and and engineers and so on might be Chinese. But if they have a labor force that that can do get the job done in Africa, I think they tend to use them. I think in the case of a place like Mozambique or like um, Angola, both of which obviously come out of incredibly devastating um, civil wars over the last few decades, um, I think and and a very very low kind of uh, levels of education. You know, kind of. I think there they're frequently um, kind of forced to to kind of bring Chinese in um, because they have skills, but also because they're frequently, in the case of Angola, they're working against uh, a deadline. You know, kind of they have to get the African Cup of Nations um, stadiums up and running with by the time that the that the players arrive. So I think that that's probably you know kind of the reason why it worked that way. Yeah, and uh, two final points on on the article, which we will, of course, uh, we're going to post on our Facebook page as well this week, and we'd love to get your feedback uh, on what uh, on, on her piece by Rachel Will. Um, you know, I thought there was a cheap shot when she made the comparison with U.S. aid. Uh, China's global aid is about $38 billion, which is a, a small percentage of what the United States does. Now, remember that the United States... Um, is the cheapest of all the major powers in its foreign aid programs. It puts about one one thousandth of its GNP towards international aid, but dollar value-wise, it still is the largest, uh, only because the Chinese don't do traditional aid. They do uh, aid in terms of export-import credits. They do it in terms of uh, overseas development loans. They do it in all sorts of different financial mechanisms beyond just traditional aid. So I thought that was a, a little bit of a cheap shot. And then uh, Cobus, it, it, you know, it, it seems standard fare that you always have to have at least one anti-China Zambia quote in every story on Africa. <laughs> <laughs> I do, you know, it has to be. Now, I was waiting for the Michael Sada quote, and we didn't get the Michael Sada quote, but we did get the Guy Scott quote. And I just thought, oh, it's such a cliche. I mean, it's such a cliche to have, you know, the Zambia quote, uh, you know, Eddie, you know, and Kobus final thoughts on this one. Yeah, particularly because, you know, by now, Michael Sata is pretty much China's best friend. <laughs> yeah, but, and, and Guy Scott is as well. But it was just like, you know, Howard French has used the Zambia quotes in and out of every article. And so you, you just you kind of expect it. So, uh, OK, so moving on to our final topic. Um, you know, two articles in one week on Chinese emigration is is really quite, you know, quite startling because you don't really see that many. Um, the Daily Maverick, actually, which is, uh, is that a reputable paper in South Africa? It's a kind of a gadfly website that, that uh, you know, pokes, pokes fun and also kind of um, rakes muck, you know, kind of in South Africa. It's, it's, it's gaining more of a reputation Okay. Now. Well, they did, a, they did a piece this week called Chinese Traders, Love Them or Hate or Love Them or Loathe Them. They are here to stay. We also saw, uh, you know, uh, you know, from China Daily talking about the emigration and the promised land uh, that is Africa. Again, this this sense that more and more Chinese look at Africa as a land of opportunity, as a place to actually make money. Um, it talks about really it references back to this idea of the permanent demographic change that is happening across the continent. Uh, but a lot of attention being focused on South Africa. Sizwei, when you see the, the rise in the Chinese population in Cape Town, does that make you feel uh, excited? Does it make you feel worried? You know, particularly in South Africa, where a lot of Chinese merchants are undermining the traditional union structure, lowering costs, making products more affordable, but at the same time threatening employment. Um, what's the, the view of Chinese merchants in South Africa and in Cape Town in particular? Oops. Sorry, was that me? No, oh. for Seasway. Oh, oh. oh well, yeah, we can go either way. Uh, oh, oh. Kobis, go ahead. 
um, you know, kind of for me, you know, kind of I, I tend to always think in South Africa, South Africa as a, you know, gen, and, and Africa generally always gains from cosmopolitanism. You know, kind of so, um, you know, kind of the Indian minorities in, in Africa have, have, have contributed an incredible amount. Um, and I generally, I'm, I'm very pro, um, you know, kind of urban life, uh, cosmopolitan urban life. Um, you know, so, so I, I usually come down on, on that side. And, you know, kind of um, for me, I'm, I'm, you know, I generally tend to want to welcome kind of people to South Africa, you know, and, and Chinese to South Africa, because I think they just add so much. Fair enough, but they're not taking your job. That's true. <laughs> I mean, but that is part of it, though, is that, you know, that there's a growing concern in South Africa that the, that the importation of Chinese goods and the presence of Chinese traders and merchants in the community is undermining the labor structure to the point where, you know, middle-class South African union jobs can't compete because they're too expensive, you know. And this is a debate that we've had in the United States for a long time. Right, and, and I think it's only going to increase as China's economy slows um, and em- employment rates continue to climb there. I think that more and more Africans are going to look abroad, especially in Africa, for uh, for jobs, for profit, um, for uh, a new life. So... I mean, do you see way when you when you see the growth of the Chinese population in your Cape Town community? Uh, you know, there's been in in places like Namibia, uh, we've seen it in Tanzania as well, a backlash that is starting to happen uh, against certain aspects in certain parts of the Chinese community. So, for example, in Namibia, um, they made they passed a law about two years ago saying that the Chinese could not own uh, hairstyle salons because they were putting out of business local women who had hairstyle salons. So this was a, you know, a very targeted law against a constituency that seemed to have some resonance in the political structure, but it was symbolic in that sense of you can only go this far but no farther. Um, do you, is that something that we're misinterpreting on the outside, or is this a trend that Chinese people should watch out for? I mean, um, you know, when the Chinese do come to, um, you know, come down to Africa or South Africa specifically, um, you know, they, they come in seeking opportunity. I mean, they come from a land having known that, um, you know, it, it's very promoted. There's like, you know, that there's a whole lot of opportunity in Africa. And generally, they come down, and I've seen many examples of this in many other cities, not just Cape Town, um, where you find, you know, shops, like, you know, Chinese shops where they sell a lot of items at a very affordable price, you know. And I think that's one of the things in Africa generally, or just, you know, generally anyway, you generally like to get something which is much cheaper. Um, and obviously this um, this uh, takes back from, you know, South African or, you know, local develop- people who, to de- who develop products as well, who try to sell items which are, you know, more expensive in that way. So, I mean, it is rather, there is a little, you know, sense of, you know, it's a little concern coming up in, in that regard in terms of, you know, South Africa itself, the home country itself, in you know, in the, the greater numbers of you know coming in, but um, yeah, you know, it's a. It's a twofold thing. It is. There's yeah. there's pros and cons to it both. You know, and in Senegal, when you're in Dakar, did you did you get a sense that the Chinese merchants were assimilating? I and mean, this is really the the sixty four million you know sixty. Well, I would say sixty four million dollar question, but it's maybe the sixty four million RMB question. Um, is this question over assimilation? And you know, I found that in Kinshasa, you know, a lot of the local merchants uh, spoke you know Lingala. A lot of the local merchants had hired locals to work in their stores, two or three. A lot of the local merchants had built products that were customized for the marketplace, uh, you know, selling beignets, for example, selling, you know, certain products that were very unique to not only Kinshasa, but the, the townships that they lived in in Kinshasa. So did you see that that was, and to me, that was a very high level of assimilation to the point where I've never seen another Westerner anywhere near that. Did you see, uh, you know, the Chinese community trying to assimilate or were they kind of, you know, retired to their own, behind their own little walls, which, you know, a lot of people suspect that the Chinese are kind of sticking together. I mean, yeah, I had the pretty much the opposite impression and the opposite um, experience when I was there. I felt, you know, there is there was a Chinatown, the Chinese, uh, for the most part, with the exception of the very young, the very young Chinese there, um, they had no interest in learning French or Wolof, um, they had no interest with interacting with the Africans. I 
most of the Chinese I spoke to said they had never once eaten uh, a traditional Senegalese meal. They had no interest in kind of uh, exploring that culture. They had all these sort of uh, terrible perceptions of African culture. And um, I mean, that's one of the things that I found most shocking. Even uh, some of the telecom workers who I met, they were housed by the by Huawei in a, a, a Chinese, I guess it was a house, and they had a driver, they had a cook. They never had to really interact at all with Africans. And I thought, um, I thought actually compared to Westerners, who at least those I met in Senegal were so open and interested and kind of learning and assimilating, um, I thought the Chinese were just so closed. This, this, what it's very really interesting for me to hear, you know, kind of, I also wonder from the other side to which extent uh, many African societies are, re are really open to having outsiders assimilate to them. Um, you know, kind of, because I think a lot of, in a lot of African societies, they don't think of themselves as a kind of Australia style immigration society. You know, kind of, there's a strong kind of distinction between insiders who were born there and who share that culture and then people who came from outside. Which, um, which, but and, just, you know, just one note. Focus on that. Cobus, let me, if I can interrupt. You can be there for generations and still be kind of counted as an outsider. So I always wonder, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation for me, like which, like who discriminated against who first? And I'm not necessarily kind of putting blame on any side, but it seems to be a kind of a self a self-generating kind of situation, you know, kind of where people tend to keep to themselves not only because they very, very probably kind of look down on the culture where they, where they are, but also because there's no kind of open door for them to kind of enter in that culture, you know, so, so that they have no one else to fall back on but to their kind of compatriots. I don't know what you think. And, well, that actually, the point I wanted to make, sorry for trying to interrupt you there, was the fact that uh, that even exists within with, within intra-Africa migration itself, how, you know, in one country you can have people from different ethnic origins or tribes that don't assimilate either. So this is not even a, a cross-racial, cross-cultural thing. This can also happen within uh, within a single community. Uh, so even among Africans themselves, that level of assimilation can be a challenge at some time. So, uh, but again, I think it goes to prove the complexity of the China-Africa relationship that it is not consistent, it is not uniform, it is not monotonous. Uh, and to the point where, you know, Braudigam used, you, you know, just to reference this interview she did on the AmCham podcast, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the blind man and the elephant. You know, the blind man touches the trunk and he says, well, this, you know, when asked to describe what it is, he said, well, it's long and, and thin. And then another, you know, touches the, the hind of the elephant. He says, it's big and large. So you can see what you want in this relationship in many respects. Uh, and so I think the variety makes it that much more interesting. So, well, that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We do this every single Sunday um, where we review and preview some of the key issues in the in the relationship. And as you're seeing, we're even broadening it out now to a global perspective with the with more presence and contributions from the United States, courtesy of Anne. Uh, Anne, if people want to follow you on Twitter and Facebook, where can they find you? They can find me at annsher07, which is A-N-N-E-S-H-E-R-0-7. And of course, uh, Anne is uh, moderating our page uh, for the China Africa Project on Facebook. So that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Kobus, if uh, people want to find you on, uh, on on Twitter, how can they follow you? Um, I'm at Stadenesk, that's S T. S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And Sizwe, are you on Twitter? Um, can I get me at S-I-Z-W-E in global? That's S-I-Z-W-E-N-D-L-O-V-U. Excellent. And we will try and put a link to Sizwe's uh, Twitter feed also on our Facebook page. And you can follow me on, fa on, uh, on Twitter at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. We'll be back again next week. You can find this podcast both on Facebook as well as on iTunes. And we're making a little plea out there to our listeners to try and uh, either star, rate us, or recommend us on iTunes because that raises our profile in the Apple ecosystem. And we want to try and kind of get the exposure up so we can get the visibility and increase our listenership as well. So if you can give us a little plug on uh, iTunes, that would be really appreciated. So until next week, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>